0: God's made in man's image God's made in man's image Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus 20 As we continue our series on the Ten Commandments Obviously this morning we're only in the Second Commandment And so we've got a long ways yet to go God's made in man's image. Would you stand with me for, for the reading of God's word, please? Let's, uh, let's pick up reading again in verse 1 and read down through verse 7. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea you must not bow down to them or worship them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods I lay the sins of the parents upon their children The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. Notice how much greater God's grace is than his judgment. Father, speak to our hearts today from your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. A.W. Tozer once wrote, "What, What comes to mind when we think of God is the most important thing about us? Think of that phrase again. What comes to mind when we think of God is the most important thing about us? folks' worship of the true and the living God ought to be life-changing. Just ask Isaiah the prophet in what appears to be his conversion experience in Isaiah 6. Isaiah the prophet is in the temple. He's been serving in the temple, but On this day in particular, he sees God high and lifted up and exalted. Apparently, for the first time in his life, he had a true encounter with God. And when he had that encounter with God, do you remember what he said? Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah thought he was going to die. He had seen God, and he thought he was going to die. And, of course, God cleansed him and then commissioned him. When Isaiah saw the true and the living God, it was a life-changing, life-altering experience. Folks, our problem is that we don't make too much of God. We make too little of God. This second commandment is like the first and yet it's very different at the same time. In the first commandment we are told to have no other gods but the true and the living God. In the second commandment we are commanded to think rightly about this true and living God. We're not to to make or to have False representations of him or false images of him. Because a false representation of the true and the living God will distort him as much as having a false God. As William Barclay points out, an image that at first we may say will help us to think about God over time may in some way come to have far more attached to it. He gives an example out of Numbers 21. Numbers 21 is the account of the bronze serpent. You remember what happened? The people were being attacked by, by snakes, by serpents in the wilderness. And God told Moses To put a bronze serpent on a pole And when the people would look up at it They would be healed But by 2 Kings chapter 18 Hezekiah was having to destroy This pole with the bronze serpent He was having to destroy it And smash it into pieces Because we're told there That the people had had come to burn incense to this bronze serpent and to bow down and worship it. It had gone from a reminder to them that God heals to an object of worship itself. And so it had become an idol that had to be destroyed. Barclay gives the same kind of illustration with a modern day crucifix. Initially, it was meant to be a reminder of the cross and to fix one's gaze upon the one who died on the cross for us. However, over time, some people, not all, but some people can attach a superstitious worship to it. Kind of a reverence to the symbol itself. Idolatry turns the means into the end. A means of worship becomes an object of worship. Now what we learn from this second commandment is there can be no substitute for the true and the living God. There's no idol of him. There's no image that can adequately do him justice. There is no image that can fully capture the sovereign God of the universe. Also, by the time we're done today, I'm hopefully going to show you how idolatry isn't simply an ancient problem. It's very much a modern day problem in ways that you may not have even clearly thought of. First thing I want you to see with me this morning is the source of idolatry. The practice of idolatry has been widespread throughout history. And in the Old Testament, all around Israel, their neighbors, whether it was Egypt or Syria or the nations to the east, all around Israel, those nations were inundated with idolatry. And it even crept into the land of Israel itself and became a problem by the time we get to the days of the Babylonian exile. In fact, that's one of the reasons God sent them into exile. God said to them in the book of Jeremiah, you have more idols than Israel has towns. The pagan worshiper believed that the life of the God was present in the statue. The gods somehow entered into the wood or the stone or the metal. Now the most common word for idol in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word peshel... Which literally means in, in the verbal form to cut or to carve or to hew. Man makes something. Man makes a god and he ends up cutting or carving a god usually in his image or the image of something on the face of the earth. There's a whole host of other words in the Hebrew language that described idols. What was clear is that Israel was not to make or to bow down to or to give an offering to or to serve in any way whatsoever anyone other than Yahweh. They were not even to try to make images of Him because inevitably those images would rob Him of His glory. There's no image that can do the infinite God of the universe justice. And so any image or symbol of Him in some way would skew something about Him and would be a false image and it would fall short of His glory. Now I want you to notice in our text this morning that He forbids them from making an idol from anything in the heavens above. On the earth beneath or anything in the waters below. In other words, all of creation is being viewed here. What do men do? Men look up at the stars and the planets at night. And they might be tempted to make an idol out of something they see there or during the day. The sun or again at night the moon. Or they might be tempted to look out across the earth and something on the earth, some object, some animal, some beast of the field or fish of the sea or bird of the sky. They might be tempted to make an image of that and the waters below, the fish. And so God is giving what would have been considered an exhaustive look at the creation. Heavens, earth, sea, no image. God is saying there's nothing whatsoever in all of creation that you're to worship and likewise there's nothing in all of creation that's to be used as an image for God so that you would bow down to that image now folks to understand idolatry we need to turn over to the New Testament the book of Romans would you do that with me please this morning Romans chapter 1 because Paul has a great deal to say about about idolatry in the book of Romans and pick up reading with me in verse 18. We're just going to read verse 18 right now and then we're going to come back uh, in a minute and read other verses. And this morning I'll be reading from both the NLT and the ESV, both. But anyway, verse 18... It says, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. I want you to follow what Paul is saying first. God pours out his anger. He pours out his wrath on man. Why? Because man has suppressed his truth. God has given his truth, God has given his revelation and what do men say? No thanks, we don't want it. But more than saying no thanks, man also does something else. Fools, And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So what is it that man do? Man has God's revelation but he rejects God's revelation and he chooses to make gods of his own. Rather than man being made in the image of God, man wants a God made in the image of man. Or man wants a God made in the image of something else in creation. And folks, man in his wisdom will never get it right. Because since the fall, what's happened to man's mind here, Paul will go on to say, his understanding has been darkened. Man is finite. God is infinite. Man is sinful. God is holy. Man simply cannot think correctly about God without God revealing himself. And, folks, that's why we've got to have the Bible. Because in the Bible God reveals himself to us Because without this what are we going to do? In our vain imaginations and darkened understanding Man would come up with all kinds of false ideas And that's the point here So idolatry rejects God's revelation And in idolatry man prefers to embrace his own fallen ideas and own fallen views And also by doing this, man wants to be able to control whatever God he creates. If man makes a God, then man can have some kind of control or say so. That tells us also that human pride is very much a part of idolatry. And so in idolatry, there's a kind of a double-barrel shotgun of things going on. On the one hand, man rejects God's revelation. And then on the other hand, man in his pride creates something that he thinks he can control. Now we're going to come back at the end of the message to follow through with what Paul says God does when this happens But secondly this morning I I want you to see with me The folly of idolatry Going back to Exodus 20 And and then we're also going to look at what some of the prophets said The folly of idolatry Jeremiah is one of the prophets Who gave a scathing rebuke of idolatry And it almost becomes humorous at one point How ridiculous he points out idolatry is. In Jeremiah 10... He says, Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold, they fasten it. With hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. And they cannot speak. They have to be carried. For they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them. For they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. And then in verse 8 he says. They're both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish. And gold from Uphaz. They are the works of the craftsmen. And of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violent and purple. They are all the work of skilled craftsmen. But the Lord is the true God, He's the living God and the everlasting King. Isaiah does much the same thing in Isaiah chapter 44. Listen to what Isaiah says in verse 12. He says the iron smith takes a cutting tool and he works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He sharpens it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. Down in verse 17 look what he says he says the rest of it he after he he, he makes an idol or he, he, he takes some of it and builds a house he goes on to say if we were to read the whole passage he builds a house with some of the wood he warms himself with other parts of the wood he cooks his food over another part of the wood he says and the rest of it he makes into a god his idol and he Falls down and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. And then one more. Psalm 115. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. Eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not Uh, feel feet but do not walk and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them so do all who trust in them. You hear what the Old Testament writers are doing? They're, They're making fun of Idolatry in a sad way. I mean, there's something sad about a man doing this, and, and then he's got to take his hammer and nails and he's got to nail his idol down to the floor so it won't tip over. And then he's got to pry it loose if he wants to go somewhere with it and strap it on his back, and he's got to carry it. How could man be so foolish? What did Moses say about God? Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 4. He points out that God has no form. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. The Israelites were to respond to God's word, not to an image. Not only were they not to make an image, this commandment also forbids bowing down to an existing image or idol. Folks, I want you to remember they've come out of the land of Egypt. Egypt had 2,000 gods. 2,000. Dr. Mark Rooker of Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest writes For the Israelites to turn back after being delivered from Egyptian bondage and the, to serve other gods would be to reverse the Exodus. Wow. I read that and I thought that is a powerful statement. It would be to reverse. The Exodus Now we see the folly of idolatry on on several different levels What he's pointed out there The third thing I want you to see with me Is subtle ways that modern man falls into the trap of idolatry Now I want to remind you before we look at this list Idolatry includes a failure to see God as He's revealed in Scripture And that's going to help us to understand some of these things that i talked to you about First of all, a very subtle way to drift into idolatry Is when we grab a hold of one attribute of God And run with it to the exclusion of the others Theologians speak of the doctrine of the simplicity of God. Now, because of negative connotations in 2020 of the word simplicity, they've changed it to to say the doctrine of the unity of God. Here's Here's what they're talking about. If we were to open up our Bibles and start reading and just make, try to make a comprehensive list of all of the attributes of God, an attribute of God is something that describes his nature and character. And the Bible gives us many attributes. It'd be a long list. For instance, God is love, God is holy, God is merciful. God is all powerful, God is all knowing, God is present everywhere at once God is just, God is righteous, God is eternal, God is invisible God is self-existent and on and on we could go Now based on where somebody is in their life at a given time They might be going through an experience where one attribute speaks to them at that particular time more than others for instance, if you're going through a difficult time and, and you read that God is always present with those of a broken heart. That, that speaks to you. But the problem comes if we allow one of those attributes to define for us who God is to the exclusion of the others. And we're pros at doing this in society today. In a culture like ours where people tend to think that anything goes, what do people love to say? People love to say, my God would never judge anybody. God is love. Is God love? Yes. But does God judge? Yes. You read the Bible, and what do you find? Right at the beginning, Adam and Eve. God judges their sin, and, and He drives them from the garden, and He pronounces other judgments on them. God judged them and then in Genesis chapter 6 God saw the wickedness of mankind on the face of the earth and what did God do to the earth? God destroyed it with the flood then you come to Genesis 11 and God uh, God comes down at the tower of Babel, and he judges man by confusing their language and spreading them over the face of the earth we could keep going with that list somebody says "But, but pastor that's all Old Testament that's true so let's come over to the New Testament a minute God judged Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 and that couple dropped dead in church for lying to the Holy Spirit God judged them Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 he said that the Corinthians who were coming to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner God was judging them and he said this is why some of you are sick and some of you have even died. At the end of Revelation we're told that God will uh, judge and destroy all of mankind at the battle of Armageddon. And, And then by saying anyone's name not found written in the Lamb's book of life is cast into the lake of fire. That's just a small sampling of occurrences in the Bible where God judged people. And for somebody to say, therefore, my God is love, my God would never judge anybody, then I would say to them, well, your God must be some other God than the God of the Bible. In the doctrine of the unity of God, theologians tell us we need to hold all of the attributes of God together in tension. Because all of the attributes of God together reveal to us something wonderful about our God. Folks, that one point right there, if that's all you ever heard this morning... That would be worth your price of admission. (laughs) To try to hold all of the attributes of God together so that you and I can keep the proper image of God. How are you going to learn this? By studying Scripture. You see the common thread this morning? The common thread this morning is everything God wants us to know about Him, who He is and what He's like and what He does can be found right here. Amen? Secondly, another modern way. Beware if your faith depends upon visuals. Do you have to see certain things in order to feel like you've worshipped? What if you can't worship unless there are stained glass windows or the image of a cross or a crucifix? Some traditions have icons and statues littered around the church. You could add your own list of visuals to that. Do you have to have those in order to worship? In the Old Testament and the New Testament when we come to worship there was an emphasis again on simply hearing the word of the Lord. Again in Deuteronomy 4 I mentioned earlier Moses emphasized to them that the Lord chose to allow them to only hear his voice when he came to them. He did not want anything else associated with their encounter with him lest they come to depend upon that visual element. I gave an example at the beginning with the bronze serpent. We have to be careful of visuals that might start innocent enough as being learning aids in worship. And somehow in people's minds, they end up being something necessary if worship is going to take place for them. Let's say that Aaron was not as guilty as everybody else. Oh, he was guilty. He was still guilty. Remember the golden calf? The people wanted Aaron to make gods for them. He had them take off their gold and he fashioned that gold into a golden calf. And he said, behold your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now let's say as some suggest that what Aaron thought he was doing was making an image of the true God. That that was what he was attempting to do. Well there is no such thing as the image of the true God. Again God's infinite. How can a finite object represent an infinite God? So you see, Aaron was just as... Even if Aaron's intent was good, which I question that, but even if it was good, Aaron was just as guilty. And what he was trying to do as the people were. I think when we come to worship passages in the Old Testament, and then we come to 1 Corinthians and First and 2 Timothy and Titus in the New Testament, there are passages in those books that talk to us about worship and there's the emphasis on praying, on singing, on reading the word and on preaching the word. And conservative churches that hold to the inerrancy of Scripture for this reason usually use the regulative principle when it comes to worship. The regulative principle says we will only do in worship what Scripture prescribes. The intent in that is that we won't venture off the pathway and get into avenues of worship that seem fine to us at the moment if we were only talking about our taste or preferences but might not be fine at all with God. And so if we want to be certain that our worship is fine with God then we only do what His Word prescribes. That's the only safe path to take. That's the only obedient path to take. Now a third way the modern world can venture into idolatry and hang on some of you on this one because I want to point out to you what Philip Riken of Wheaton College is trying to say in this. He's making a very valuable point. Reichen talks about uh, feminist theologians who reject the fatherhood of God if you're not aware of it there are feminist theologians today today, radical left feminist theologians who want to erase anything out of the Bible that describes God with any kind of the masculine whether the pronoun he is used or any of those places in the Bible that God is referred to as a heavenly father there's even conferences and meetings that take place where people get together and they celebrate God As being our heavenly mother We must remember what Jesus said What Jesus say in Matthew 6 When you pray Pray this way Our what? You can do it with me Our father who art in heaven Perhaps a woman has had such a horrible experience With a father growing up Or with a husband. That she cannot bear to think of God in the masculine. We need to pray for somebody like that. And it may be absolutely horrible and sinful what has happened to her. The way somebody has sinned against her. They may have done something to her that has scarred her for life. But folks, this still cannot be a reason for changing the language and images of God in the Scripture. And what she must remember is that God is a perfect Father. God is someone who will never disappoint you. And God loves you. He's your perfect Father. Still another way modern man ventures into idolatry is greed. Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Greed is a desire for more and more of the things of the world. But folks, money and possessions can never be a substitute for God. This is probably the one that hits many Americans between the eyes because we love our stuff. The car we drive is never good enough. The house we live in is never good enough. We're always concerned about getting bigger and better things and costlier things and this upward mobility. Some people have an obsession with that in their lives. They've always got to have more. And then they get that, it's fine for a while, and then again they want more. they got to have the better job, the bigger paycheck. It's an endless cycle. And the Bible in the New Testament calls it idolatry, plain and simple. That greed is idolatry. You might go on a mission trip with our church. Let's just say you go on a mission trip and you go somewhere to a remote part of Africa and you walk into a grass hut and you learn that that grass hut is maybe their place of worship. And this is a tribe that knows nothing about God. And you walk into that grass hut and you find out that they've carved images and in their false worship, they're bowing down to that. And, And you come back to America and you're so grieved for them. But you might be Endlessly greedy in your heart. The Bible says you're an idolater just like that person that you saw in Africa. Different kinds of idols? Yes. But still idolatry. And you know what the danger of that is? According to 1 Corinthians 6, Paul lists idolatry as, um, uh, greed is one of the sins that if people continue in that If it's present tense and future tense they, just, they live in that greed He says the greedy person will not inherit the kingdom of heaven That's how serious he says it is Lastly, talking about modern day things. I've got to cut the list short and move on. Immorality. In all the lists, like Colossians 3, 5, that talks about greed, along with greed, they list idolatry. I mean, they list immorality as idolatry. That goes along oftentimes with greed in those passages. They're linked together. I told you last week about how we are such a sex-driven culture. I mean, we're consumed with the human body and, and worshiping the body and what our body is like. And we're so enamored with that. And we live in such an immoral culture. Well, the Bible calls that idolatry. Sexual sin is idolatry. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if we do not honor God with our bodies, we are idolaters. Now let's wrap up. Fourthly, I want you to see the solution to idolatry, whether ancient or modern. Number one, come to God as He's revealed Himself in His Word. Number two, worship God the way he's prescribed worship in his word and then thirdly and here's the big one for those who desire an image of God look to Jesus he's the perfect image what's the Bible say? The word became flesh and tabernacled among us and Jesus told his disciples, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And so for those who desire to see what God is like, look to Jesus. He ought to be enough. Amen? I know of no better solution to idolatry than those three. Get your Get your view of God from the Bible, worship as the Bible prescribes, and look to Jesus. In Acts 17, Paul at Athens, Paul is grieved over all the idols he sees in Athens. And Paul said God is demanding that men everywhere now repent. God's answer to idolatry is simply repent Turn away from your idols and come to Christ. Idols are dead. Idols cannot save. Whatever you're trusting in other than Christ, it cannot save and it cannot satisfy. For those who will not repent, Let's go back to what Paul said a moment ago in Romans 1. The Bible says that God as an expression of his wrath has turned man over to his sin. Three times Paul says God gave them up, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gives men up, he says, in their lust to impurity. He gives them up to their dishonorable passions and he gives them up to a debased mind. What Paul is saying there essentially, if you do not repent, God essentially greases the sliding board in the direction that you are determined to go. The last thing you want God to do is to give you up to your own ways and desires. That's the last thing you want to have happen. We need to be like the Thessalonians. Paul said of the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1, He commended them because they had turned from idols to the true and the living God and he says you've become an example to everybody in Macedonia around you we need to put our idols down and turn to Christ Father we come to you in the name of Christ We ask you to speak to us about whatever might be an idol in our hearts. God, you know every heart. You know every mind. You know what has become the driving passion of our life that may be very grievous to you. It could be a relationship, it could be money, it could be a job, it could be a house. Whatever it might be, you know each heart. And God, like one of the reformers said, the human heart is like a perpetual idol factory. And that is so true. Lord, help us to shut the idol factory down in our hearts. And worship and serve you only. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.